0: If you would like to open your Bibles to Psalms 127 and 128, I'm going to cover two Psalms this morning. We're going through a series of sermons entitled Safe Passage. We're talking about a spiritual journey that we are on. Of course, these Psalms, Psalms of Ascents, were sung by religious pilgrims going up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple on Zion, one of the hills in Jerusalem. So these are psalms that are well familiar to pilgrims, and we're taking this metaphor as applicable to our lives as we are two pilgrims on the journey of life. So today we're looking at Psalm 127 and 128, and they are written in a different genre than the rest of these psalms of ascent. They are what we call wisdom literature. You know it's a wisdom passage when it has words like blessed. Blessed is the man that does this. It usually means that that's a wisdom genre that you are are reading. For example, the book of Proverbs also belongs to wisdom literature. Both Psalms 127 and the book of Proverbs are written by Solomon, King Solomon, David's son, who was given a remarkable gift of wisdom by God himself. Now, what is this wisdom genre all about? We need to make this introduction to understand how to take these psalms. Well, it teaches us to live regular day-to-day life in light of our relationship with God. That's what wisdom books in the Bibles are for. They're teaching us how to live practically what we believe in our heart's and in our heads about God and and His nature and His relationship with us. So when the Bible talks about wisdom, we've got to be a little bit nuanced here because in our world, wisdom means smarts, means being intellectual, being educated, being well-trained in a particular field. Wisdom in the Bible has to do with making right decisions. You can be very smart and make terrible decisions. And the Bible would not call you wise, even though you may be smart. Wisdom has to do with living intentionally, with pursuing virtue, with obeying God's commandments, with building your life on a different foundation. It's very practical. So if you read the book of Proverbs or even our psalm here, you will see that it deals with issues like parenting and marriage and work and sex and money and home life and friendships kind of the normal, everyday, ordinary things of life. And that's because that's where life happens. That's what we do most of our times. Being here on a Sunday morning is just a small fraction of our week. Most of our life is spent in family relationships and at work and with friends and doing dishes and changing diapers. That's life. And so wisdom literature teaches us how to live that as a Christian, as a godly person. So today, our big question is, what does it mean to live wisely, to live well? What does a life lived well look like? Our passage uses words like blessing, so we'll use the same language. What does it mean to live a blessed life, a life that is blessed by God and pleasing to Him? Now, of course, we know how our culture defines a good life or successful life, and we'll deal with that. But what does God think is a well-lived life? So let's read our Psalms first, and then I'll tell you how we're going to approach it. Psalm 127, and then we'll read, right 128 as well. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. Eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, and your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed, who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So this is how we're going to address it this morning. First, we're going to consider the basis of this blessed life. In other words, the context, the foundation, how does it happen in general. Secondly, we'll look at particular aspects of this blessed life, and specifically the three aspects that we find in our text, work relationships, and legacy. And third, we'll look at someone who has lived a blessed life, We'll look at a blessed man, somebody that we can look to and say, this is what this blessed life looks like. And then finally, as we come to the Lord's table, we will look at how we can receive this blessing that can change our lives. So first, the basis of the blessed life. Secondly, particular aspects, work, relationships, and legacy. Third, look at the blessed man, and finally, how we can receive this blessing. Okay, so what is the basis, the context of the blessed life, of a life well lived? It's very clear in our passage and in other passages in Scripture. For example, Psalm 128, 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Verse 4. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. In other places, In the wisdom literature, like in Proverbs 1 and Psalms 111, we read that it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. So the fear of the Lord is the context of a life well lived. In other words, if you want to live well, if you want to live a meaningful, successful life, you need to come to grips with what this fear of the Lord means. What does it mean? Well, it's a shorthand for many things. Fear of the Lord is the Bible's way to talk about a relationship with the Lord. It's the Bible's way to talk about recognizing God's kingship in your life, submitting to God's authority in your life, to respect and to love God. It's a way to say that God is at the center of your life, that you now have a different orientation in the way you approach your life. It means that To fear the Lord means to treat God as he ought to be treated, as creator, sustainer, and redeemer of the world. You see, the good life, the blessed life, begins with and is anchored in the reverence and humility before the Lord God. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point because that is underlying everything we talk about at church every Sunday. You need a relationship with God to affect for your life to be affected by it. You need to start with the fear of the Lord, submitting yourself to God, orienting your heart again towards God. It only makes sense to turn to the author of life if you want to live well. You see, if God alone is good, then to live a good life, we must do it with him at the center. If you want a blessed life, we must humble ourselves before the one from whom all blessings flow. It makes perfect sense if you put it like this. You want a good life? Go to the one who alone is good. You want a blessed life? Go to the one from whom all blessings flow. You see, when, we, when the church speaks to the unbelieving world, our message is that all pursuits of happiness will ultimately be frustrated if they are not pursued with God at the center. That's our message to the world. When the church speaks to the unbelieving world, we're saying, you cannot live without God. You can have a a life that looks like life, but it's not really life. You can have meaning that looks like meaning, but it's not really meaning. It's just things you're you're doing in your own power, and your own strength, without the source from which all those things, like joy and meaning, and, and things come from, you see? And so when we speak to the world, and very often the church is accused of trying to put a religious burden on our neighbors. When we speak about the Lord, often our our words are taken as, we just want you to do this one more thing. There's just other rituals you need to do. Other things you need to pursue. Other duties to take upon yourself. And yet, what we really are saying to the world, we're saying is we know the way to be happy. Would you be happy? That's the gospel. Luther says that the gospel is only laughter and joy. That's true. Our message to the world is not negative, it's positive. We're saying to our unbelieving neighbors, there's a way to live life well. There is a way to find joy even in this world. There is a way to make decisions that are meaningful and will last into eternity. And that way has to involve God. You must fear Him. You must revere Him. You must love Him in order for you to live a good life. Now, when I was thinking about this dialogue between the church and the world, the image that came to my mind is a bunch of people and this is probably from my childhood, but a bunch of people, let's say kids, who are digging in the dirt with plastic spoons and sticks. And somebody comes to them and says, there's a well right here. And you can come, and everybody's welcome at this well. And you can have clean, fresh, good tasting water. It's right here. And they turn to us, and they say, you intolerant bigots. How can you claim there's only one well? We're going to make our own wells. If we dig long enough, this dry dirt is going to produce fresh water. And we know they can do that. And so we say, no, we're, we're not bigots. We're not, we're not putting a burden on you. We're not telling you you, just, you have to change your views on, on something. We, we're saying there's water here. There is joy here in the Lord. Come and drink without cost. This is free to everybody. We have no benefit from you coming to the well. But because we love you, we want you to come and drink. That is essentially what happens when the church preaches the gospel to the world. We're talking to thirsty people who are looking for a well-lived life, who are trying to live a good life apart from the Lord. And we know it's impossible to do. There's no water in the dirt, but there's water at the well. And so we ask them to come and drink. Only with God at the center, God who is the source of all joy, God who is the source of all meaning and blessing, can we hope to live meaningful, good, fulfilling lives? Now, that's the foundation. That's the basis. We need to start there. But now... Now that hopefully we understand that, how does it play out in actual life and particular aspects of our everyday existence? So let's look at three practical aspects of life, and we'll see how we can approach them wisely and have a blessed life in those three aspects. There are three aspects from our text. There are work, relationships, more specifically family, but it's applicable to all relationships, including friendships. And then lastly, legacy. In other words, what do we leave behind if we live life well? I hope this is helpful to you. It was tremendously helpful to me. I am 36. I'm, I'd like to think I'm towards the end of my life, but that's probably not true. I probably have many more years ahead of me. But I have to look back and evaluate even now. I have to ask myself, am I living this life well? What is my legacy? What is my work? How are my relationships? And so let's ask those honest questions to ourselves now as we come to Scripture and let Scripture speak into those very mundane, ordinary parts of our lives. So work. How does our culture define success at work? This is not hard to understand, right? It's money. It's influence. Right? Right? It's how important you are to your company, how indispensable you are, how other people respect you or not respect you. That's how our culture defines success. If you're a successful person, you make a lot of money, lots of people respect you, your company wants to keep you at all costs, and people depend on you. That's success in our culture. In other words, let me give you another metaphor for it, which is more of a biblical analogy. You're a king and you're building your kingdom. And in that kingdom, it matters how big your military is. In other words, how much influence and power you have over others. Can you defend your work from others, from competitors, perhaps? Another thing that's important is how much money you're generating for yourself, but also for others. How big is your treasury in your kingdom? That's important in the world's idea of success. Also, it's important, what do other kings think of you? Do they respect you? Are they taking you seriously? Are they going to attack you and not think anything of it? Or are they going to stop and say, he is too strong for us to attack? So kingdom is a good metaphor for success in this world. How successful are you as a king? And of course, the psalm is written, Psalm 127, is written by a king and a very successful king in the world's eyes. King Solomon knew much about kingdoms and power and wealth and reputation. Under his rule, Israel experienced the Golden Age. There was no better time in Israel's history than under the rule of Solomon. A time of tremendous expansion. The territory of Israel was expanded. Other nations were conquered and folded into the kingdom of Israel. Solomon built things. He built great things like the temple. Like the royal palace, the city of Jerusalem got built up. You know, when there's construction, the country is doing well. It was a time of prosperity and peace. The borders were secure, and he was very, very wealthy. There was lots of gold in Israel. Other kings and queens knew how wise and successful he was, so they came to hear his wisdom. Like a queen, a queen of Sheba came. And she wanted just to hear him talk, because he was so wise. Now, if you look at this and you say, this is a very successful monarch. And yet, that is not at all how Solomon himself defines success. Look at what he writes, the first verse of Psalm 127. He writes, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. What is he saying, this very successful king? He's saying that all his great achievements only matter if they are in line with what God is doing. In other words, Solomon's kingdom was only as important as God's kingdom. Whatever he did for his own kingdom was ultimately in vain, unless whatever he did was also what God was doing. Because only God's kingdom remains, his kingdom would come and go. It's interesting that he mentions the house and the city. Those are two things he mentions. Probably two things he's most known for. The house is the house of the Lord, the temple. The city is the city of Jerusalem. Those are two things that God cared about. And Solomon got to participate in God's work. God said, not to David, but to Solomon, that he would build him a temple. Solomon did. God picked Jerusalem as the center of his activity where people would come and worship. And so Solomon built it up. But Solomon is saying, I was building because the Lord was building. it. I was protecting the city because the Lord was protecting it. And if the Lord wasn't part of the picture, it was all in vain. So let's relate it to our work. Are you building what God is building? Are you protecting what God is protecting? Are you growing what God is growing? How does your work contribute to the work of the kingdom of God? Now, this may sound too general, but it shouldn't. We have to be specific. We have to look at our our culture and our options in our careers. There are some jobs that you should not take as a Christian. There's just some jobs that are off limits. You know what those jobs are. They are set up to rebel against God. And as Christians, we don't participate in that because God isn't building that. You see, we would be laboring in vain. There's no contribution that specific jobs make to God's kingdom. If it sabotages the advance of the gospel, if it props up the world's values, you shouldn't do it. If it assaults God's kingdom, That's not a job for you. But maybe you are in a job like that. Are you building something that God will destroy? This is a good question to ask when you're choosing a job, when you're getting a promotion perhaps, when you're looking at your options. What you're going to be doing there, is it going to survive the Lord's judgment? Or is it all going to be gone and you're going to say, I labored in vain. I could have done so many other things, but what I did is just gone now. Let's get specific, okay? I try to pick some, some common jobs. If you're in construction, what are your buildings used for? Once you're done building them, what are they used for? Do you know? Do you care? You should. Are you contributing to something that is against God and his kingdom? If you are a teacher, is what you are teaching the children, is it true? I'm not talking about religious teaching, per se. Those things are easy to figure out. I'm talking about teaching math and art and literature. If you're teaching those things, are you teaching things that are true, that reflect God's beauty and God's wisdom and God's order? And, of course, math does that. Art does that. Literature does that. But you can also teach it in a way that obscures God and his wisdom and his beauty. If you're in finance, does your work lead to trapping people into financial slavery? Is the part of your industry, financial industry, is that part that is set up to get people into traps? Or are you part of the other industry, the other part of the financial industry that helps people, that helps people manage the resources that God has given them well, and you're actually help them build their lives towards something better. If you're a counselor, if you're a therapist, do your sessions reinforce sinful patterns in someone's life? I've been around long enough in the ministry to know that not every Christian counselor is going to counsel in a Christian way. Many counselors would simply agree with what the person is doing and support them through it. They would not question their decisions. They would not question their behavior. They would just simply be there to help them adjust to this new change. If you're a Christian who is in counseling, you can't do that because you are destroying God's kingdom. You're building something that that is, is in vain. So as you choose a career... As you look for your next job, as you decide to accept a promotion, you must be asking these questions. Are you building what God is building? Are you working for the success of his kingdom? And it might take you time to think through it, because perhaps a library job isn't as easy to classify how it fits in the Lord's kingdom. So you have to sit down and think through it, and you have to say, okay, what I'm doing day to day, how does it help? The expansion of God's kingdom. How am I contributing to the Lord's work? Again, I'm not talking about ministry. That's easy. I'm talking about regular jobs that God calls us to do. And if you're working for the success of God's kingdom and not your own kingdom or someone else's kingdom, you will know that because you will be able to rest well. Second verse says, Psalm Psalm 127. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. If you're working for your own kingdom, that's how it feels. Because you're always worrying about your borders. You're always worrying about your treasury. But if you're working for God's kingdom, it says that God gives to his beloved sleep. Friends, it's not your kingdom. You're only protecting it because God wants you to protect it, so you take a shift. But God is in charge of the protection of his own kingdom. You bring some money to the treasury, but that's just your taxes. God is in charge of the treasury. And so all that responsibility is off of you. And so you can go to sleep and be completely at peace because God is in charge of his own kingdom. All right, so that's work. So to live a life well in your work and in your careers, you must do what God is doing. You must build what God is building. Now, secondly, relationships. How does our culture define a good relationship? For example, a marriage. What I hear, what I see on TV, what I read, the unbelievers that I speak with seem to be convinced that a good marriage means accepting each other for who they really are, not questioning any of their decisions, any of their ambition. And So you're finding a person that would fit well with what you are about that would complement what you are and what you are doing. And that's a good marriage in the world's eyes. But the Bible, not surprisingly, has a rather different approach to relationships. Now, this is said in the context of family life, but it applies to all relationships. So if you're not married, think of friendships. If you don't have children, think of friendships. Psalm 128.3 says your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. This is a weird way to describe family life, right? Wife is like a vine. Children are like olive shoots around the table. But what are those images about? They're about growth. They're about fruitfulness. They're about flourishing. And so a well-lived life influences people around you to the point where they flourish and they grow and they bear fruit. So your marriage, if you're a good husband, you're working hard to have your wife reach her potential and to blossom and to bear fruit and to develop the gifts that God has given her. You're not seeing her as somebody who serves you. You're seeing her as an opportunity to get her to her potential. If you are a good wife, you're looking at your husband and you're saying, how do I make it so he succeeds? So he achieves what God has put on his heart and in his life. And so you're working to make him a fruitful person and grow and bear fruit. A godly parent is not just concerned with discipline, but with growth. You see, it's a mistake to think that parenting is only about making them behave a certain way they don't stick out. They're just kind of even. Everything is fine. Don't cause any trouble. You don't hear them, don't see them. That's terrible parenting. Christian parenting means you develop them. You grow them. They're like olive shoots. They're springing up in your life and in your home. And you're saying, how do I fertilize that? That's discipline. How do I make them grow and bear fruit? How do I discern what their particular gifts and skills and experiences are so, so I can maximize on them? So I'm not putting them down, I'm raising them. I'm putting scaffolding and trellis around them so they can grow strong and confident. You see, inherent in the biblical idea of a good relationship is change. If you evaluate your friendships, any relationship that you have, the question we ask, if we consider a blessed life, a well-lived life, is, am I causing positive change in this person's life? That's the question that is normative for all friendships. Does my friendship contribute to healing, to correcting sinful thinking and behavior, to encouraging holiness in this person? There's Christians today. I feel like I have a little bit of an angry edge today. I'm thinking about all the critics for some reason. The world and other Christians. So I'm responding to stuff that's in my head. I'm hoping you can track with me, but There are Christians today, younger Christians specifically, who are angry at the church because the church, they say, is oppressive, because church does church discipline, because church enforces particular kinds of behavior, and church is committed to certain moral norms. And so Christians like that, and they are Christians, most of them, they're saying, I don't go to church because church is too oppressive, but I do live an authentic community with others. I have genuine relationships with others. In a sense, I'm living church out the way it should be, even though I don't belong to an organized congregation. And so the question would be, so how are you doing it? What are you doing? How are you living? And they would say, well, I'm hanging out with friends all the time. You know, we go to dances and we take kids to the park. We eat together. We go fishing. And, man, you see that sunset on the river, that's like going to church. It's like worship. You hear stuff like that. People say, well, we have these pickling parties, you know. Invite a bunch of friends and make pickles. It's great. This is like church, they say. This is a real example. To that we, organized religious Christians, respond, you are terrible friends to each other. And this is not church, unless you challenge each other to grow in Christ. It's fine to say, we just accept each other. It's great. Love each other, accept each other as they are, And to that we, from the biblical perspective, say, but you're terrible friends if you do that. If you don't change in the process, if you're not confronting each other and pushing each other to grow and to become a better person, to become a better Christian, those are not good friendships. You really are just hanging out together. You really are just fishing and making pickles, and that's all you're doing. That's not church. Church inherently involves church discipline. Church discipline is is absolutely necessary if we are to define relationships in biblical terms. Why? Because we care for one another. We care enough that we would confront each other and say, man, you got to change. This is terrible for you. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to be silent. I'm not going to watch you destroy yourself. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you deal with that sin. Yes, I still accept you, but I want you to be better. That's church that's all church discipline is. It's just institutionalized in a congregational congregational life. but it's fueled by a desire for change in the other person I'm, I'm going to quote from a book that we use for premarital counseling. We just had a wedding in South Dakota. Jordan and Lauren got married, and so they went through premarital counseling with me and um, and this is the book they we used it's It's Tim Keller's Uh, The Meaning of Marriage is an excellent book to learn about marriage, Christian view of marriage. Now, listen to how Keller describes what the point of marriage is, and you will hear some of the same ideas that we see in the psalm as we talk about the fruitful vine and the olive shoots. Keller says, what then is marriage for? It's for helping each other to become your future glory selves the new creations that God will eventually make us. The common horizon, husband and wife, look toward is the throne and the holy, spotless, and blameless nature we will have. Within the Christian vision for marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. Now compare it to how we usually talk about falling in love. It is to look at another person, and get a glimpse of the person God is creating. And to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to His throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. Each spouse should see the great thing that Jesus is doing in the life of the other mate through the word, the gospel. Each spouse then should give him or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision the day that you will stand together before God, seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. This is a beautiful way to talk about marriage, but it applies to any relationship, you see? When you are a good friend, you're looking at that person and you're saying, I see something in you that God sees in you. I see you becoming someone else. God is going to sanctify you. God is going to change you. Oh, God is going to take care of all this dross in your life. And I want to be here for that. I want to be a friend that will walk through all those things that you have to change with you. And I want to get to the throne with you. And see so you become spotless and beautiful because God will be finished with his work then. Now, that's a relationship wisely handled, that's a well lived life. So you look at your relationships, I look at mine. I have to ask that question How am I contributing to my friend's growth and healing and change? How am I doing that with my wife? How am I doing that with my children? Am I the kind of person whose presence and words and actions contribute to their growth? Or am I just somebody who's there? That's the world's view. You're just there for them. The biblical view is saying you're there as an agent of change. All right, let's look at the last aspect of a life well-lived, Legacy. And maybe not many of us are thinking about legacy, but if you don't start creating your legacy early, there won't be any legacy when you're gone. Legacy is often used in our culture in the context of sports, of course, and politics. The legacy of LeBron James is often talked about on the radio. Is he going to get more rings than Jordan? If he does, his legacy is secure, right? who's going to be in the Hall of Fame, that seems to be a big deal to athletes. For a politician, legacy means being remembered by passing a significant law, by making a decision that will affect the future generations, by being remembered as somebody who did something good. But the Bible describes our legacy, not in terms of rings and acceptance with others or memories of a good deed, It describes your legacy or heritage in terms of people, actually children. Look at Psalm 127, verses 3, 4, and 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate, Again, an interesting picture of parenting and legacy. A well-lived life will leave behind children who will be like arrows in a conflict with an enemy. So the olive shoots of Psalm 128 become arrows in the hand of a warrior. Now, of course, the obvious context here is traditional biblical family, where you have a piece of land that you need to work, so children are very important strong, confident, wise children will help you work the land and bring prosperity to the family. If an enemy attacks, it's nice to have children who can fight, who who know how to shoot arrows, who know how to hold a sword, because time will probably come when you have to defend your property. So that's the immediate context, of course. The children bring honor to their parents by living wisely and continuing their parents' work and having strong and confident children of their own. But if we take it more broadly, you see, the legacy of a well-lived life is those people whom you have influenced toward becoming people of influence themselves. So if you leave behind people who were under your influence during your lifetime, who are now influencing others, and propagating and change, and like arrows are shot into the world, and pierce the darkness, and make a difference in the world, that's your legacy. It's people. It's not rings, and it's not laws. And it's not reputation. It's people that you leave behind who will say, because of that person, I am a person of influence now. I am making a difference because the way I was brought up. And of course, we talk about family first, right? If you have children, that's how you approach it. You say, am I raising the kind of kids that once they're shot out of the home and they're gone, which I hear that's coming, at some point they leave. Once they're gone, where are they going? What are they doing? Are they the kind of driven, confident, strong people who take on challenges and pierce the enemy's heart and say, I'm here to make a difference. That's how I was brought up. I'm not here to keep my life safe. I'm not here just to stay healthy as a goal in my life. I'm here to make changes in this world for God's kingdom. That's the kind of kids that we are to raise as Christian parents. And if you accept that understanding, it definitely changes your idea of parenting. Because your concern isn't their safety primarily. Your concern isn't their education primarily. Oh, you're getting ready. You're training them for war. That's Christian parenting. You don't want them to be olive shoots around your table for long. You want those olive shoots to get strong. And then you make arrows out of those olive shoots. And you shoot them out, And they're gone. And they risk their lives for Christ. It's hard to let go. But that's the kind of children that will be your legacy. We, we shouldn't be raising children who are so concerned with self-esteem and, and, and their own careers and their own comfort that they will make no difference in the world. In fact, they will absorb all the positive stuff that's going on around them into themselves and their lives. Now, the second application is broader. Maybe you don't have children. Maybe your children are grown. But are you leaving behind spiritual children who will be like arrows in the hands of Christ, ready to be shot into the world to do his work no matter how risky it is? I'm talking about discipleship. I'm talking about an older Christian taking a younger Christian and saying, I'm going to train you for war. I'm going to show you how to pray. I'm going to show you what's really important. You think this is important, but it's not. I'm going to walk you through those decisions. I'm going to teach you how to fight a spiritual battle. Yes, I will tell you about the the forces of darkness that that are ready to engulf you. But you will survive, and you will thrive. You'll be like an arrow in the hands of Christ. Are you preparing people like that? They may not be related to you by blood. But are you influencing people towards that goal? Of course, our big verse on that is 2 Timothy 2, verse 1 and 2. And it is put in the context of spiritual parenting, just like our passage in Psalm 127 does it. This is Paul speaking about Timothy, speaking to Timothy, his child in the faith. They're not related by blood. You then, Paul says, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul is saying, I have poured my life into you. I have trained you. You are my child in the faith. You are spiritually my descendant. You are my legacy, and now you... We'll need to find other people like you and train them as well as I trained you. And then the world will be changed because they will train others and they will train others. That's what we commonly call discipleship. And if we invest in people like that, influence people towards becoming arrows in Christ's hands, that's our legacy. So that's a question for us. All of you, wherever you are, In your spiritual maturity, there's always somebody who is less mature than you, usually next to you. Think about people in your life. Do you have spiritual children? Do you have people who would look to you and say, because of him, because of her, because of their life, because of their time that they've invested in me, I am no longer an olive shoot just growing willy-nilly around the table, as most Christians are. I'm an arrow sharpened by this person to be used at the hands of Christ to pierce darkness. That's the question. Think of names. Please, don't, don't leave it on, on the abstract level. Think of names. Who are the people in your life that are those arrows that you're investing in? It's hard work, but are you doing it? And if you're not, why not? You don't do that. There's no legacy. Other stuff that you do will will not survive the judgment day. Well, we've talked about practical aspects of this blessed life, a life well lived. And now we need to finish by looking at a blessed man, somebody who did that. It's helpful for us to have an example of somebody who's actually lived it out. And of course, we go to Solomon, right? Solomon wrote this psalm. He understands what it is to be wise, reportedly the wisest person in the world. Solomon teaches us through the psalm how to raise children, right? How to have a healthy marriage. How to work in a way that pleases the Lord. And so we look at his life, and we discover, if you read the scriptures, he did not finish in wisdom. Solomon did not leave the legacy that we are reading about in the psalm. Solomon's work did not survive the judgment day. Solomon's relationships faltered and became eventually meaningless. Now, you look at his life, and towards the end of his life, the man had 700 concubines and 300 wives. Stuff to make every one of them as a fruitful vine. It's hard. I don't know if he knew their names, I don't know if he knew them. It's political alliances. His son, who succeeded him on the throne of Israel, Rehoboam, had a choice to make after Solomon died. And his choice was to raise taxes, to make more money for himself, to strengthen himself, to oppress people even more, or to lower taxes and give people a breather, and rule them in wisdom. And he was foolish. He did not listen to the wise men in the court. He listened to his buds who said, Course, more money, a no brainer. Raises taxes, half the kingdom leaves. The kingdom is now broken for centuries into Israel and Judah. And he reigns over half the kingdom because he's foolish. That's Solomon's legacy. Solomon did not train him for war, he just trained him to think of life as being successful in the world's eyes more money, more influence. Solomon failed. So we can't take him as as our blessed man. We have to look to someone who is greater than Solomon. And of course, I am talking about Jesus. Jesus lived wisely. Jesus is the blessed man in whom these Psalms are ultimately fulfilled. Now look at Jesus' work. Jesus built God's kingdom. Remember, that's the first thing Jesus says. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand very clear, announcing to the world, this is my mission, I am building God's kingdom, I'm ushering God's kingdom into the world. But he did that by proclaiming good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, by recovering sight to the blind, and setting at liberty the oppressed. Jesus had no army, or treasury, or palace. He was a failure in the world's eyes. But in his resurrection, he built the only building That will survive in eternity. The eternal temple where God and his people are reconciled through his sacrifice. And that's his body. His resurrected body is God's temple. It's God's house that God built. Look at his relationships. Jesus had a lot of conflict around him. Again, this is a rebuke to those who think that Christianity is a community that accepts everything and there's no conflict. That's not true. We're constantly dealing with sin in each other's lives, so there's always tension and conflict, and it's normal. Jesus had a lot of conflict around him. He yelled at the Pharisees. Yes, the meek Jesus yelled at people, flipped the table, got a whip out. But then he was tremendously gentle with those who were crushed by guilt already, those who did not need a rebuke. The Pharisees did. They needed a rebuke, and Jesus did that. But the prostitutes and tax collectors didn't need a rebuke. They needed love, they needed tenderness, and Jesus gave it to them. You see, Jesus was the kind of friend that caused others to change and grow and flourish. He made people fruitful. So he confronted their sin. He encouraged growth. He encouraged healing, sometimes physical and spiritual at the same time. He was that kind of friend. You see, he lived his life well, and his relationships testified to his idea of what friendship should be. Now look at his marriage. Jesus and his bride, the church. A lot in Scripture is written about his love for his people, his love for his church, which we are a part of. Look at Ephesians 5.25. Comparing human marriage to spiritual marriage of Christ in the church. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, heaven cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, Jesus loved the church and he saw the future glory self in the church. He saw the beautiful bride on the wedding day. And Jesus says, I will do everything I can to get you there, to help you change even if it means I have to die for you to atone for your sins, which he did. What do we see here? A life well-lived in relationships. This is how Jesus lived, the blessed man that lived a blessed life. And finally, his legacy. Jesus invested in 12 men and a few women. He left behind just a little group of people, his disciples, his spiritual children. And they were shot like arrows into all directions from Jerusalem, and they changed the world forever. This is not an exaggeration. To say that those 12 men and a handful of women changed the world forever. Yeah, Thomas went to India and planted a church there. Paul went all over. Planted churches in the cultural centers of the day. I mean, you see regular people who were trained by Jesus. And remember, in Acts, that's how they were recognized. People say, well, they're illiterate peasants, but they they were with Jesus. And you can tell that they were with him. Now they resemble him. They were trained by him. They were discipled by him. And so they changed the world forever. That's Jesus' legacy. A life well-lived produces this kind of legacy. People of influence who are changing the world. The enemy could not stop them from advancing the gospel. You know, all of the apostles except for John, were martyred. Those were not olive shoots cowering by the table. Those were arrows sharpened by Christ himself and shot into the world. And most of them died. So that's his legacy. I'm going to leave you here and I'm going to invite you to come to the table. And as we come to the table, I want you to see the last two verses of Psalm 128. This is a blessing that is extended to us. And the key phrase here is that the Lord bless you from Zion. It's important that the blessing comes from a particular place, a place that God chose to be the center of his activity. That's where the temple was. That's where King of Israel ruled from. And this is where the blessing comes. Comes from. And this blessing, if received by us today, will change your life. It will change your legacy. It will change your relationships. It will change your work. So, what is the center of God's activity now? Is it still Zion? Is it still Jerusalem? No. It's not a place anymore. It's a person. It's a person of Jesus. Jesus is the new temple, He is the new king. You see, His new throne is the cross. And his resurrected body is the new temple where God now meets with his people. And that is exactly what we see at this table. We see his body broken on the cross. We see the cup of the new covenant that proclaims that his resurrection now gives us new life and a new, a new covenant to live under. And so we come to this table. and We must come being ready to accept a blessing from Christ himself. Think of coming to the table It's taking something into your life as you take something into your body. You take this from God. It comes by grace. And God says, this is the blessing. Christ in your life is the blessing that will change your life. And so if you are a believer, and if you've been challenged by this talk of legacy and relationships and work, this is your time of repentance. This is your time of renewal, of coming to the table and saying, Lord, change me. So I could have a legacy that will last. So I could work the way that you work. So I can have relationships that increase fruitfulness of others. That I can prepare men and women who will stay behind me should the Lord tarry and change the world. Repent and renew that commitment. And as a symbol of that, you take the bread and you take the cup. And Christ is with you through this. If you're not a believer, don't come to the table. This is for those who understand what's happening here. It's for those who fear the Lord. If you don't fear the Lord, maybe this is the time for you to start fearing the Lord. Maybe this is the time when you submit to Christ and you say, I want to be part of that church, the bride, whom Christ is now bringing to perfection, whom he is working hard on to make her blameless and spotless and completely beautiful on the day of her wedding. To experience his love to become part of his legacy, to build where he builds. Come to him and take him by faith. But don't come to the table unless that's happened with you. So let's pray together.